Hey, Keystoners, welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. Well, 2021 is not off to the greatest start, thanks to the yahoos who stormed the Capitol building this week. I just can't wait until the transition is over and hopefully everything will just settle down after that. Can we all just chill out? It's been a rough fucking 12 months. Let's take it easy, okay? I saw a meme this week with a really great message. Actually, Keystoner Christian shared it on his wall. And it said something to the effect of, instead of expecting 2021 to be better just because it's not 2020 anymore, let's try to force 2021 to be better by doing nice things for other people and supporting those who need it. I thought that was a great message. And I I think that's a great way to go into this new year. I just wanted to share it with you guys. Hopefully it'll resonate with you as much as it did with me. On a lighter note, KSOM got a five-star rating and positive review on Apple Podcasts this week that I wanted to share with you guys. D. Ryhall wrote that they like the show and love the Pennsylvania history, but they had one question. Do I have a rooster? Yes, D. Ryhall, I do have a rooster. So apparently you can hear him in some of the episodes. He is very vocal, and he does not give a shit whether it's day or night. And he's kind of an asshole. You can't even walk in his pen to feed him without him wanting to attack you. By the way, his name is Chief Pope after the chief in the show, The Closer, which is one of my favorite shows, as well as my mother's. So we collectively named him Chief Pope. But yes, thank you for asking. And to answer your question, I do have a rooster. He's an asshole. And thank you for overlooking his big mouth. I also heard from Megan this week, who reached out on Facebook Messenger via the Keystone State of Mind Facebook page, who let me know that she's having a hard time leaving a review. And she's not the only one that I've found to have that problem. Some people have an issue creating an account and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. So if you have an answer to that problem, please share it in the KSOM Keystoners Facebook group and help out these guys that are having a hard time with it. I also want to say hey to Greg and Lisa that also reached out to let me know how much they like the show. I really appreciate the feedback. It means a lot to me. So thank you guys so much. Don't forget to go check out KSOM's Patreon. That's at patreon.com slash KSOM. For a monthly pledge, you get lots of great extra content and cool shit from me. So check that out. I don't have any patrons yet. Fingers crossed. I know you guys will come through for me. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash K-S-O-M. And that link will be in the show notes. And of course, there's the new K-S-O-M merch. You can find that at the website, K-S-O-M, the pod dot com. 
click the merchandise tab and check out all the cool shit. That link is also in the show notes. I have to put out a content warning for today's episode. We are going to be talking about sexual abuse and violence against children, but I'm sure you've figured that after reading the title. I won't go into crazy detail, but this was a bit of a rough episode for me to research, so I want to make sure you know up front. This is also going to be a two-part episode. In part one, we're going to talk about Jerry Sandusky and his victims and his crimes. And part two is going to focus on the Penn State cover-up, who was involved, and how it affected the university. Okay, you guys know what we have to do now. Let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. It was a scandal of epic proportions. Child sex abuse committed by Jerry Sandusky. Years of glory erased. Horrific accounts of a Sandusky basement of horrors. Penn State, where football is religion. Exposed for the ultimate sin. Protecting a monster. Former coach, Jerry Sandusky. On June 22nd, 2012, former Penn State football assistant coach, Jerry Sandusky, was found guilty on 45 counts of child sexual abuse and sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison. This culminated after a two-year investigation that revealed Jerry Sandusky had abused at least 10 boys over a 15-year period. How was this human trash bag allowed to get away with this for so long? At the time of his conviction, Sandusky was 68 years old. But his history with the Penn State football program went back nearly 50 years to 1963 when he was a student athlete for the team as a defensive end at the age of 19. Sandusky graduated from Penn State in 1965. He went on to be a graduate assistant at Penn State, at Juniata, and at Boston University. I don't know what Juniata is, and I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. I'm assuming it's a college football team. So yeah, he was a graduate assistant with these football teams until 1969, when he was hired on as an assistant coach at Penn State under legendary coach Joe Paterno. Sandusky was the assistant coach, but he was also the defensive coordinator. Once again, I'm not familiar with college football. I don't know if this is a common move or what, but that's what he was. Jerry Sandusky was beloved in the Penn State football program as well as on campus and even in the whole area known as the Happy Valley. Happy Valley, Pennsylvania is not a real place. It is the nickname for the state college area, and it was given that nickname during the Depression because that area was not hit as hard 
financially as the rest of Pennsylvania was. So State College, that's the town that Penn State is in. But that area is known colloquially, I don't think that's right at all, colloquially as Happy Valley. Yeah, that's right, colloquially. I just double-checked. I had never heard of the Happy Valley, but it came up because one of my sources was a documentary called Happy Valley. So I had to research it. What is, is that a place? No, it's just the nickname for the state college area. That's not terribly important to the story, but I get stuck on the details sometimes, like the word colloquially. So Sandusky was killing it as the assistant football coach and the defensive coordinator for the Penn State football team. In 1977, he started a nonprofit organization called the Second Mile. And this organization served underprivileged youth in the area, as well as giving support to their parents. The Second Mile did do a lot of good in the community. According to the Wikipedia page, they helped over 100,000 children every year. In 1990, then-President George H.W. Bush honored the Second Mile in his Thousand Points of Light campaign. But the main focus, especially for Sandusky, was the free summer camp. And this was open to about 400 boys every summer. Boys between the ages of like 8 and 14. In this summer camp is where Sandusky found his victims. He would pinpoint the most vulnerable boys in these summer camps and give them what he thought they were lacking. A father figure, love, affection, gifts, classic grooming behavior. And this attention would go on much longer than the summer camp. It wasn't like he just focused his attention on these kids while they were at camp. He obsessed over them. And he would continue to pursue these children for months or years after he had met them. This will become very clear later when we hear from a couple of his victims, one of which he adopted. Jerry Sandusky and his wife Dottie actually adopted six children. One of these kids, Matt, would come out later as a victim of Sandusky's, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. The first time Jerry Sandusky was accused of being a creep was in 1998. That's when a young boy came home from an outing with Sandusky and he had wet hair. His mother was obviously concerned about why the child's hair was wet. 
The child told his mom that he had showered with Sandusky. They were not on any kind of outing that required a shower. As a matter of fact, there is no outing with any grown-ass man and young boy that requires a shower. Just in case we needed clarification on that. If you remember back to Season 1, Episode 23 of KSOM, The Disappearance of Ray Grecar, this should sound familiar to you because we talked about it. Ray Grecar, at the time in 1998, was the District Attorney of Center County. State College is within Center County, so he was in charge of investigating this case with the help of the police department, obviously. Ray Grecar decided a sting operation was the best course of action. He placed a couple investigators inside the child's house and had the mother invite Sandusky over. Once Sandusky was in the home, she confronted him about this. Did you take a shower with my kid? And he admitted it. Yeah, I did take a shower with your kid. Yeah, I I hugged him in the shower. Yeah, we horsed around, quote unquote, horsed around. And we'll hear that in a lot of excuses that Sandusky has. They horsed around. During this conversation that was overheard by police investigators, Sandusky also asked for forgiveness from the child's mother and then literally said, quote, I wish I were dead, end quote. District Attorney Ray Grecar decided this was not enough evidence to proceed with the case, and it was closed. Ray Grecar disappeared in 2005 and has not been seen since. If you want to know more about that, go back and listen to episode 23. That is a little sketchy in this context. But as we discussed in the Ray Ricar episode, probably not relevant. So in 1998, Jerry Sandusky gets a pass. His first pass. Jerry Sandusky retired as the assistant coach for the Penn State football program in 1999. But with his record as a defensive coordinator, he really could have gone on to be a head coach anywhere. So why didn't he pursue that? He had offers that he turned down. And now in hindsight, we can question Why did he turn them down? Was it because he was afraid that these allegations would come up? Or was he afraid to walk away from his victim pool at the second mile? I think both are plausible. Sandusky also should have been next in line to be the head coach at Penn State. But it was made clear to him that 
that was not an option. And that's why he retired in 99. The 1998 allegations were made known to the Penn State administration. So I would not be a bit surprised if they pushed him into retirement. That's just speculation on my part. But who wants a fucking pedo on their payroll? Nobody. But Penn State did not cut ties with Jerry Sandusky after his retirement. He was given lifetime access to certain areas of the campus. Most importantly, the locker room. This was a decision that the Penn State administration would come to regret. For the next couple years, Jerry Sandusky regularly brought victims to the Penn State locker room to assault them. We have a couple of witness statements to corroborate this. Just one year later, in 2000, a janitor named James Calhoun walked into the locker room and witnessed Sandusky performing oral sex on a child. Calhoun went to his supervisor. The supervisor gave him the name of who he should report it to if he decided to do so. And he decided not to. In later court proceedings, Calhoun would defend his inaction by saying that he was afraid to lose his job. Yes, jobs are important. You know what else is important? Not allowing children to be victimized. Thanks, bye. The next report comes from February 2001. This incident has a bit more documentation. Here's the story. In February of 2001, Mike McQueary, who was a Penn State graduate assistant on the football team, walked into the locker room and didn't see something concerning, but he heard it. He said that he heard a rhythmic slapping sound, and it was immediately recognizable to him as a sexual act. He was trying to like get out of there quickly before he interrupted something, you know, that probably he assumed initially was consensual or something. But just as he was walking out, he saw a young boy around the age of 10, like trying to leave the shower area and somebody pulled him back in. So now he's kind of watching like what's going on here. And then Sandusky, a couple of minutes later, walked out with a towel around his waist. So McQuery, rather than, I don't know, take some kind of action at the moment, he just left and he went and talked to his father and asked, you know, what should I do here? And his father, obviously, like any sane person, said, uh, you need to tell someone like now. So McQuery went to his boss, Joe Paterno, the head coach of the Penn State football team. 
Paterno wasn't sure how to proceed initially because Sandusky wasn't an employee of Penn State. But he did decide to relay this information to athletic director Tim Curley. Tim Curley then went up the chain and he called a meeting with Graham Spanier and Gary Schultz. Graham Spanier was the president of the university. And Gary Schultz was in charge of the university police, or at least their funding. He wasn't actually a police officer in any way. During this meeting, these three bigwigs decide that, yeah, they really do have to report this. But they never talked about reporting it to the police. They were going to report it to the Department of Child Welfare and to the Board of Trustees on Jerry Sandusky's charity, The Second Mile. They never discussed going to the police, not even the campus police. But they kind of dragged their feet on reporting anything. They wanted to talk to Sandusky first. And even before they did talk to Sandusky, they all started having second thoughts about reporting anything. There was email interactions back and forth, which super dumb if you're trying to fucking cover something like this up, but there was. And they never said Sandusky's name specifically in these emails or alluded to what he had done. But they did kind of all decide, okay, we're not comfortable going to the authorities. Let's just talk to Sandusky and see what his story is and then offer him help, you know, some kind of mental health assistance or whatever, like try to get him help for this problem. Oh my fuck. Get him help. They want to get Jerry Sandusky help, but they don't want to try and help the child that he assaulted. And, and at this point, they know he assaulted a child. As a matter of fact, Joe Paterno would later go on to say, quote, well, I don't know what you would call it. Obviously, he was doing something with the youngster. It was a sexual nature. I'm not sure exactly what it was, end quote. That quote came from court records. He also went on to say that when Mike McQuarrie came to him to tell him, you know, his suspicions, that McQuarrie was so upset, Paterno did not really want to push him for the details. So it was obvious. These guys knew that Sandusky had assaulted a child. They eventually did confront Jerry Sandusky about this. And his answer was, oh, no, we were just horsing around. Yeah, we were both naked in the shower, but we were just horsing around. Who the fuck horses around with a small child in the shower? I don't even know a small child that would horse around with a small child in the shower. Get the fuck out of here. And these fucking bigwigs at Penn State, they're just like, mm, okay, well, good enough for me. All they did was ask Sandusky to not bring any more guests to the locker room. Guests. I, I'm, I'm fucking blown away. They referred to Sandusky's victims as his guests. 
So Sandusky gets another pass. He continued to work for the second mile. He continued to interact with children. He continued to be allowed on the Penn State property. And even though they did ask him not to bring any more of his fucking guests there, he did anyway. He brought children there. Suspicions would not rise against Sandusky for another seven years. Seven years. He was allowed to continue victimizing children because of Penn State's inaction. And it is fact that he did assault at least four more boys during that time. I'm getting fired up here. I have to try to chill out, open another key light, because this is fucking infuriating. In 2009, the mother of a teenage boy went to police alleging the sexual assault of her son by Jerry Sandusky. And this time, there was no bullshit. Police began investigating immediately. In court records, this boy would be known as victim number one, but in the years since, he has gone public with his story, so we know his name. I, of course, always want to respect the privacy of the victims, but in this case, Aaron Fisher came forward, has done interviews, and wrote a book, so I think I'm safe to say his name and tell his story. His book is called Silent No More, and I will find the link to purchase it on Amazon and put that in the show notes under my sources. I didn't read the book, so the information that I'm about to share came from an interview that Aaron Fisher did with Chris Cuomo on ABC's 2020. This interview was aired in 2012 after the news broke of Sandusky's arrest and conviction. This is available on YouTube, totally worth watching, and the link is in the show notes as well. In 2004, Aaron Fisher was 10 years old. He was very athletic and did very well in school. His mother was very attentive and loving, but she had a lot on her plate. She was single with three children. One of them has special needs. So they were ecstatic when Aaron got the invitation to go to the Second Mile Summer Camp. And this is where Sandusky set his sights on Aaron. Sandusky would bring him gifts and take him to football games and let Aaron come over and play at his house. Aaron said his house was like a playground. In the basement, there were pool tables and dartboards and foosball and other kids for him to play with that were also really happy, which would have been Sandusky's six adopted children. Aaron's mother, Dawn, was kind of suspicious at first about how much time Sandusky wanted to spend with her son. But Sandusky was a legend, and he was well known as being very generous to children in need. So she 
was able to put her fears aside and let her son have this time with Sandusky that she thought was a good thing. Aaron says for the first two years of knowing Sandusky, it was great. But when Aaron was 12 in 2006, Sandusky started to change. Started small. Sandusky would rub his leg in the car while they were driving. Aaron thought, okay, well, you know, some families are different. Maybe this is not as weird as I think it is. Sandusky is a master manipulator. He knows exactly what to do to get these children to relent to his advances and to get them to keep quiet. Before long, Aaron says, he began having overnights at the Sandusky home. And this is where the abuse began in the basement. In the interview that I watched with Aaron Fisher, he really didn't go into any detail and I don't think it's necessary. We get the picture. But he did say that, you know, for an hour to two hours, he would be in the basement with Sandusky after everybody else went to bed. He began trying to distance himself from Jerry Sandusky. But guess what this fucking psycho did? He became a volunteer coach on Aaron's football team. He started volunteering in Aaron's school. All Jerry Sandusky would have to do is walk down to the office and tell the principal that he needed to see Aaron and he could pull him out of school at any time. The principal would literally have Aaron pulled out of class anytime that Jerry asked. Aaron said that this happened so often that his grade in one class went from a high 90s to failing. That's how much school he missed. Aaron began acting out at home and his mother just couldn't understand what was going on. His grades are dropping. He's becoming very aggressive. And finally, Aaron opened up to her and said, yeah, I, my grades are dropping because Sandusky keeps pulling me out of school. So she's pissed. Obviously, she goes down to the school to talk to the administrators. And they did admit that, yeah, they did let Sandusky pull Aaron out of school all the time. During this meeting with the principal and vice principal, Aaron came clean and said, he's been sexually assaulting me for years. Dawn, Aaron's mother, said, call the police. We need to get the police involved. And the principal advised her to go home and think about it first. That's the kind of control that Jerry Sandusky had over everyone that he knew. He was such a big name and everybody just thought he was walking on water. They told her to go home and think about it. Well, fucking props to Dawn. She did not go home and think about it. She went directly to the police station and filed a report. And because of that, an investigation was initiated to look into this disgusting creep. I love Aaron and Don. 
At the time of this meeting, Aaron was 15 years old. He knew how powerful Jerry Sandusky was. He knew that people were not going to believe him. And this was going to be embarrassing for him. This is something very personal. But he had the courage to tell the truth anyway. And Dawn had such unwavering faith in her son and what he was saying that she didn't question it for a second. She didn't think about it. She didn't worry about the consequences. She did what was right. And I'm sure in the moment, she was just doing what was right for her son. But that choice that she made is what brought Jerry Sandusky down, finally. The sexual abuse case against Sandusky was opened immediately. But the wheels of justice turned slow. But I do think that Sandusky started to realize that his walls were crumbling pretty quickly. Because less than a year later, in 2010, he retired from his day-to-day involvement with the second mile. Finally, on November 5th, 2011, Jerry Sandusky was arrested on 40 criminal counts of child sexual abuse. He was arraigned and released on a $100,000 bail. Also, he was put on house arrest. His family stuck by him. His wife, Dottie, she's either as manipulative as he is, or she's completely fucking clueless. I watched a couple of interviews with her as well. And she said... No, Jerry just likes to shower with the kids. He always showered with our kids. She literally said that in an interview with Matt Lauer that, no, Jerry just likes to shower with fucking kids. And that he had always showered with his own kids. I can't even, I can't even. That's it. That's all I have. I can't even. This bitch And there are people that think that Dottie Sandusky should be brought up in charges as well. I can't disagree with that. She was described as being in charge of the household. She wore the pants. There's no fucking way that she did not know what was going on. The interview with Dottie is available on YouTube and the link is in the show notes. Don't take my word for it. Watch it for yourself. On December 7th, Sandusky is arrested again after two more victims come forward. And this time, I don't believe he was granted bail. He was going to have to sit in jail until his trial. The trial began about six months later on June 11th, 2012. And during this first day of testimony, Sandusky's adopted son, Matt, came to some hard realizations. By this time, Matt was married and he had kids, and he'd been a part of the Sandusky family for decades. During the investigation, Matt was asked if he had ever been sexually assaulted by Jerry. And he said, no, no, of course not. And he was asked if he believed that Jerry could have done the things that he was accused of. 
And Matt again said no, never. But according to Matt, after sitting through the first day of the trial, hearing testimony from the victims, he realized he had to tell the truth. And the truth was, yes, he had been sexually assaulted by Jerry. He met Sandusky at the Second Mile Summer Camp. He had an absent father. He lived in poverty. And Sandusky zeroed in on him. Sandusky actually petitioned the court to force Matt to come and live with him as a teenager. And the court granted this petition. Even though Matt's mom had concerns and brought up the sexual abuse allegations from 1998. According to Matt, the home that they lived in did not have running water or toilets. And this all comes from the documentary Happy Valley. Matt is featured prominently in this documentary, and that's what he said. The home he grew up in did not have running water or toilets, and there were upwards of 30 people living in this house. If I'm a family court judge and I'm hearing something like that, I might look past an accusation that did not result in a conviction to let this boy go and live in a house where there's running water. In the Happy Valley documentary, they really come down hard on this court for putting Matt in the Sandusky home. But if this is the information that I have, and I, and I have to make a decision, does this kid continue to live in a house with no running water and no toilets and 30 plus people living there? Or do I put him in a home that is stable and clean, even though the mother, the biological mother, is claiming some kind of potential abuse situation? I think I'm going with the clean running water toilet house. But either way, Matt was placed into the Sandusky household. Not only placed in the household as a foster child, but adopted by the Sandusky family. And he says that 90% of the time, it was a great place to be. It was fun and there was home-cooked meals and there was family time, but then, the other 10% of the time was horrific. A lot of the information that we know about Sandusky's grooming behavior came from Matt. He's the one that told the world about all the gifts and being on the sidelines at Penn State home games and having box seats at college bowl games. Matt said that Jerry Sandusky was like royalty wherever they went. And he never wanted to let him down. 
But after hearing the testimony of those victims on the first day of the trial, he realized that they were basically telling his story. And it was time that he came forward and told his own story. He said he didn't want to be a coward anymore. He went home that night and looked in the mirror and made a decision. And then he went to the district attorney with his own stories of abuse. Matt never had to testify in court. He said that he would have, but he was never asked to because by the time he came forward, the trial was already started. He never had to. But of course, he did come forward on the Happy Valley documentary, as well as an exclusive interview with Oprah, which I watch available on YouTube, also in the show notes. Matt said he was immediately disowned by the Sandusky family. And Dottie actually referenced this in her interview with Matt Lauer. She said that her adopted son, Matt, was a thief who often stole money from them. And her belief was that he jumped on the bandwagon to try to get some cash. To be fair, Matt Sandusky did get a settlement from Penn State. He was one of 26 people that settled out of court for an undisclosed amount of money from the Penn State administration. I don't think that negates his claims though. I think there's enough evidence of Jerry Sandusky's predilection to children for me to believe that he did sexually abuse his adopted son. I can't think of anything that could come up that would make me question Sandusky's guilt. He's a fucking creep. And a jury of his peers agreed with that. Full circle, back to the beginning. On June 22nd, 2012, Jerry Sandusky was convicted on 45 counts of child sexual abuse. He was subsequently sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison where he will die, as he should. There has been some legal maneuvering and appeals and blah, 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 but that's irrelevant because at this point, Sandusky is still in prison with his original sentence. Deuces creep. But I do have a couple of things to mention before I close out this episode. One is that Sandusky's teeth are terrifying. Seriously, just look up any interview with him. When he was younger, before he got caps, he looked like Pennywise from It. And then later, after he got caps, he looked like Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. You remember that movie, Dennis the Menace, when Dennis accidentally knocked out a couple of teeth from Mr. Wilson's dentures and he replaced them with chiclets. 
Yes, that's a movie I actually watched. But yeah, in Sandusky's mugshot, he looks like he has chiclets in his face. Whoever did his caps should really be stripped of their dental license. Okay, let's move on from Jerry Sandusky's teeth and let's talk about his son, Jeffrey. Jeff Sandusky was convicted and sent to prison in 2017 for sexual assault and possession of child pornography. Yeah, it's worse than it sounds. Jeffrey Sandusky, adopted son of Jerry Sandusky, was found in possession of nude photos of his stepdaughters after he repeatedly begged them to send him nude photos and engage with one another in sexual acts. These children are obviously not identified, but the older victim was 15. We have no idea how young the younger victim was. Jeffrey Sandusky was sentenced to three and a half to six years in prison. I don't think I'm alone in believing it should have been longer than that. And there's just one more thing that I want to discuss before I close out part one of this episode. In 2000, Jerry Sandusky co-wrote his autobiography. This book was called Touched, the Jerry Sandusky story. I I wonder if this was some big joke inside his head, like, oh yeah, I've gotten away with touching children for how long? So I'm going to fucking name my book Touched. When I first read that, my stomach fucking turned. This creep's autobiography is called Touched. This has been one of the darkest stories that I've researched yet for KSOM. Make sure to come back for part two. In the next episode, we're going to talk about how these people in power were held accountable for their inaction, as well as how the Penn State campus the university and the student body were affected by this scandal. But in the meantime, stay keystone, my friends. <laughs>